We're going to turn again to the book of Proverbs tonight, so if you will turn to Proverbs in the 16th chapter. While you're turning there, I'll pause and ask the Lord for his help. Father, as we've thumbed our way through Proverbs, we've come across your wisdom again and again and again, and we pray that you would give it to us again tonight, reminding us also that Paul taught us that your son, Jesus, has become for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. So even as we turn to this book of wisdom, we anticipate that this book will point us to your son who is wisdom himself and who is our salvation, our sanctification, our righteousness. So move that we would walk in your wisdom and trust in your son tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We often uh, think as we study through Proverbs uh, of the book as a collection of kind of one-liners, and rightly so, uh, especially in these middle chapters. In chapters 10 through 22, we find that Solomon is often um, from one verse to the next changing the subject uh, so that One verse really stands alone. It's a one-liner. And then the next verse stands alone, and the one after that, and so on. In fact, you can see this really clearly if you just look at the last three verses of Proverbs 16, where Solomon writes, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules a spirit than he who captures a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So there you have three verses Um, each really about three different things. One of them, verse 31, is about the glory of old age. Verse 32 is a word about self-control. And then verse 33 is about the sovereignty of God, even in the role of a dice. And so, really, you could preach a separate sermon on each of those verses. And we've been doing just that in most of these looks at Proverbs, both this time around and a few years ago when we were in this book as well. In fact, I looked this week, and in these middle chapters, chapters 10 through 22, there have been 14 sermons, and 12 out of those 14 were on a single verse. So this middle section of Proverbs really is a collection of one-liners, and we have to read it that way. But from time to time, and tonight will be an example, from time to time, we are bouncing along in Proverbs, going from one verse to the next, and just trying to pluck up the wisdom that's in each individual verse. Uh, When we're doing that, occasionally we start to see a pattern. That is to say, we start to realize that sometimes there are these groupings where each verse stands alone and each verse can be read alone or studied alone. And yet, as we read several of them, we see that in a particular section, there begins to be a common thread running through several of the verses. That Solomon keeps coming back to a similar theme over and over again. So sometimes it's perhaps... Uh, that he wrote one verse about taming the tongue, and then maybe he said, well, let me say something else about that, and then here's something else about that, and so on. Or maybe it's that before uh, these Proverbs were all put together in book form, maybe Solomon had them in some sort of a journal or something, and then when they were compiled, they were put together in categories. We're not sure exactly uh, why it happens like it happens, why sometimes it just seems to be one after the other that are unrelated, and sometimes several fit together, but that's the way it is. And whatever the reason, sometimes, as I say, several of these one-liners actually fit together and can be considered together. And, and we'll see that in these first five verses tonight. So listen to 
Proverbs 16, 1 through 5, and see if you can see, yes, each of these verses has something different to say, but there are actually a couple of common threads running through. See if you can notice what they are. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart and is an abomination to the Lord, assuredly he will not be unpunished. Now, did you see any common threads in those five verses? There is a common thread of God's sovereignty, isn't there? Three different times he speaks about the sovereignty of God. In verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then in verse 3, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. In other words, God's in charge of your plans. And then verse 4 as well. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God's even sovereign over them. That's one thread that comes through is God's sovereignty. And then a related thread that comes through in these verses is God's searching. That God is so sovereign that he even sees the motives of our hearts. And doesn't he say that in verse 2? All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And then verse 5 again speaks about what's on the inside that God sees. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And so tonight I want to try to just trace both of those threads through this passage to think about them and to see how they also intertwine with one another. So first, just listen to what these verses say about God's sovereignty. Solomon's intent, and we see it again and again, not just in this passage, but throughout the book of Proverbs, is to tell us that God is absolutely sovereign. Now, normally we think about God being sovereign over things, big things like the weather and global politics and all that, and we say, oh, God's in charge of that. Nothing's out of God's hands, and that's true. But you'll notice that here Solomon brings it down much closer to home, doesn't he? Here Solomon says that God is sovereign, absolutely in control, even over our individual plans. The plans of the heart, verse 1, belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And so what Solomon is saying and what we can say to ourselves is, well, I plan to wake up tomorrow morning, but God will determine if I do. I plan to preach on Luke 18 this Sunday, but there's no guarantee. God's in charge of that. Scott and Jess plan to be in Bangladesh by Sunday morning, but only God knows what he has in store for them. As James says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. That's what Solomon is saying. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow, but God does. You plan, but God answers your plans and makes them happen. So it's good to make plans. We have to make plans, right? You can't live your life if you don't make plans. The point is not that planning is bad. The point is, while we rightly make plans for ourselves, we make plans, but only God makes things happen. God is absolutely sovereign over our plans, our hopes, our dreams. And the question is simply, do you really believe that? You really believe that if you get sick and cannot go on your vacation, it's because God willed it that way. Or that if the job offer does not come through, that that is the answer of the Lord's tongue to your plans? Or do you really believe that if the baby comes out unhealthy, that God knows what he's doing? 
Whether we believe that or not, it's true, isn't it? The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And because that is true, there are some things that ought to be true of us in response to it. Some applications. I want to give you four of them. The first is from the book of James, verses 13, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. You can turn there if you like, but let me just turn there myself and read it to you. James 4 13 through 15, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, and here's the key, instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills. We need to train ourselves very simply to say that. Not just sort of as a rote thing, not as a mantra, because, well, that's what Christians are supposed to say. Uh, I'll go tomorrow to this city, God willing. I just sort of tack that on like, amen, Jesus' name at the end of my prayer. No, but we ought to say it as a note to self. Whenever we're making plans, we ought to add to our plans a note to self. I will do such and such, Lord willing. I will make my plans, but only God can make them happen. That's one application. That's a simple thing. The second application, probably more importantly from this first verse, is that we need to stop banging our heads against the wall of God's sovereignty. In other words, what I mean is we need to be willing to accept it when God doesn't answer our plans the way that we planned and be okay with that. In other words, if you're sitting in front of the computer and you click, keep hitting send to that email and it doesn't go through, maybe God doesn't want it to go through. You keep trying to make that flight work and you're trying to arrange it and it just won't happen. The computer keeps malfunctioning. Maybe God doesn't want you to go on that flight. Maybe he has a better flight. Maybe he has a better price. Maybe he doesn't want you on that trip. Or if you wake up sick, accept that as God's will. Maybe he doesn't want you to go to that meeting after all. Now I know what you'll say, because this is what I've said. I know I'm sick, but I've got a lot on my to-do list today. But sometimes God is just saying to us, "Uh uh-huh, you do. You have a lot of plans, but remember, your plans belong to you. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the Lord comes from me. So sometimes, very simply, we need to be willing to embrace failure or frustration or changed plans. Thirdly, as an application, we should look at the third verse here. In order to apply verse 1, we read verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So we're still thinking about God's sovereignty over our plans from verse 1, but the application then in verse 3 is that there would be a great deal less of the aforementioned failure and frustration of our plans if we would, before making them, commit our works to the Lord. If we would make our plans in consultation with the one who is able to give answer to our plans, then our plans might actually turn out more like God wants them to and less like we thought they should go, and thus there will be less of the banging of the head against the wall, less of the frustration that we so often feel. So we need to be able to say when we're thinking about what we're going to do, Lord, if you want me to interview for that job, I'm going to plan on doing it. But will you make it work? 
If you want me to interview, will you make the interview happen? Will you make it go well? Will you do your will? Or, Father, I plan on purchasing that car. Or we plan on buying this house, but God, will you establish the plan? Or if it's not your plan, will you make it obvious to us that it's not your plan? Since the plans of the heart belong to man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, therefore, verse 3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Since God's the one that makes your plans work, then go to him for your plans in the first place. That's the point. And then the fourth application is simply that we take comfort in verse 1. It's possible to read Proverbs 16.1 and read it as a real negative. It's possible to read this verse and say, okay, so what, what Solomon is saying is there's certain things that I want to do and God's just not going to let them happen because God just wants to show me who's boss. You could read it that way, right? Well, how about reading it this way? There are certain things that I want to do And if God doesn't let them happen, it's not that he's just trying to show me who's boss. It's that he loves me and he knows what's best for me better than I do. Yes, sometimes he may give no help to my plans in order to to knock down my self-sufficiency a few levels. Sometimes he may not let things work out for me so that I can learn not to rely on myself. But often isn't it true that the reason God doesn't give the answer of the tongue to your plans is because your plans prove not to be the best plans and if God allowed you to do what you thought you were going to do it would have wreaked havoc on your life it would have led you down a path of sin maybe it would have led you down a path of financial loss maybe if God allowed your car to start that morning when you wanted it to start and it wouldn't start you would have gone down the road and been in a wreck who knows We don't know for sure ever exactly all the things that God is doing when our plans are frustrated, but we have to be willing to trust that verse 1 is not simply about God proving a point. Verse 1 is about God who is wise and who is loving and who sometimes doesn't answer our plans because he loves us. And in fact, if he gives no credence to your plans, even simply to teach you a lesson about pride and self-will, then even that is love, isn't it? It's love if God shows you that. So God is sovereign over your individual plans. That's the first thing. And then still under this umbrella of God's sovereignty, still under this first main heading, we also should say not only is God sovereign over our individual plans, but he is sovereign even over the plans of the wicked. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Verse 1, if it's true, has to be true of wicked people just as much as it's true of righteous people, right? The wicked man makes his plans just like you do. But just like you, he cannot go through with his plans unless God permits them, just like you. We see this powerfully in the book of Job, right? With the wicked one capital W. Satan was intent on running roughshod over Job, but before he could do it, he had to get God's permission. And if that's true of Satan, then surely it's true of wicked people. And we see this in verse 4, don't we? The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God has created even the wicked for the the purpose to which their life is going. Now we have to be careful here. Solomon is not saying God is the author of evil. He's not saying that God approves of the wicked things that wicked people do. And yet what he is saying is that God makes wicked people and that he allows their evil to go through sometimes. He gives the answer of the tongue to their wicked plans sometimes. We saw this in Lamentations 3 a few moments ago, didn't we? Verse 38, 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? God permits the works of evil men. He could stop them anytime he wants to, but he doesn't always do so. And we don't know all the reasons for that, but verse 4 here tells us that he does so with purpose. Do you see that? The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, or your version may say for his purpose. God creates those people whom he knows will do evil, And sometimes he allows their evil plans to go through for a purpose, as part of a larger plan for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Now we read in Lamentations 3 that God does not willingly afflict pain. He does not willingly do that. Or literally it says he doesn't inflict things on us with a whole heart. And what that means is not that when God does allow bad things to happen, that it's sort of an accident. Well, he didn't willingly do that. It just sort of happened. That's not the point. The point is when we read that God doesn't willingly inflict difficulty on us, the point is that pain or hardship or sin against us that God allows is not his primary goal. In other words, if something difficult happens to you, the goal is not to let something difficult happen to you. That's not the main goal. There's a bigger goal. The bigger goal is to do you good through the difficulty and to bring about his glory through the difficulty. So God allows difficulty in your life, but that's not his primary purpose for you. There's a bigger purpose. He doesn't do it with his whole heart. And if that seems hard to get your mind around, that God would allow difficult things to happen, even sinful things to happen, so that good would come and his glory would come, think of this. Without the wickedness of Pharaoh in Exodus, there would have been no Passover land and no Exodus story and no tambourines and dancing at the end of it all, right? Without the evil of Nebuchadnezzar, we would have no Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego or Daniel, would we, to look to. And without the evil of Pilate and the chief priests and the Pharisees, there would have been no crucifixion. And no salvation for us sinners. Did God like what those wicked men did? No, of course not. Did God approve of what they did? No. Morally, no. But he permitted it. And he wove it into a larger plan for our good and for his glory. And therefore, we mustn't be overwhelmed or discouraged when in our own day, the wicked or their deeds seem to gain the ascendancy. God created them, and he allows them to do what they're doing. He gives them so much leash for wise and good purposes, and he will not allow their evil to overflow the boundaries of those wise, good purposes. Sin and evil are no more out of control for God than your child's sin is out of control for you, right? Your little child may throw a temper tantrum and he may wail around on the floor and you may sit there and allow it to happen and you may have a good reason for allowing it to happen. Perhaps if he wails around long enough, he'll eventually tire out and he'll he'll cut out the nonsense. But you can allow it as long as you want and you can have a reason for allowing it. But as soon as it ceases to be profitable for you to allow that child to do what he's doing, you can pick the child up and wrap your arms around his arms and your legs around his legs and you can call a halt to all the kicking and screaming, right? Can you not? At least when they're little. Well, 
so it is with God's permissions to evil men. He allows evil to go on sometimes, and he weaves it into his greater purposes, verse 4. But as soon as that evil ceases to go into the pattern of his greater purposes, God can wrap his arms around the evildoer and shut down what they're doing like that. And he does do that. So we ought not to despair. That's the point. We ought not to despair at evil. Just as in the book of Job, God told Satan how far he could go and no further, so it is with evildoers and their sins today. God will not allow sin to overflow the bounds of his good purpose. So God is sovereign. He's sovereign over your individual plans. He's sovereign, we saw in verse 33, even over the rolling of dice. And he's sovereign over the plans of the wicked. And yet, he also will hold the wicked accountable for their actions. And that's part of the second common thread in these verses, namely God's searching. God searches out. He knows our hearts. Listen to verse 2 again. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. The Lord weighs the motives. Now carry that back into what we were just saying about evil. God may permit evil for wise purposes, but it's not as simple as that. Verse 2 tells us that while he's permitting evil for wise purposes, he also searches the hearts of those whose evil he permits. When he allows things to happen and he weaves them into his purpose, he also judges the motives of those people who are involved. For instance, the prophecy of Habakkuk chapter 1. You remember Habakkuk was prophesying in the latter days of Israel's life, Judah's life, actually, and everything was a mess. God's people were a mess. And God said in verse 6 of that first chapter of Habakkuk, I am raising up the Chaldeans, and they are going to chastise my people for their sins. So God permitted these evil Chaldeans, and he wove what they were doing, which was wicked, into the purpose that he had to teach his people to turn back to him. But at the same time as he permitted the Chaldean sins for wise and good purposes, he also punished them for their sins in verse 11. And we may read that and say, how can that be? How is that fair? God allowed the Chaldeans to do what they did for his own glory. He allowed them to do the things that they were doing. And then he turns around and punishes them for doing his bidding. How can he do that? Well, because though God allowed the Chaldeans to overrun Israel for his glory, that's not why they did it. They didn't do it for God's glory. Just as we read here in Proverbs 16 too, God weighed their motives, God searched their hearts, and what he found was that the Chaldeans didn't do God's bidding for God's glory. They did God's bidding because they themselves, as we see in verse 5, were proud in heart. They did it for their own self-aggrandizement. Listen to what Habakkuk says in, verses, or in verse 11 of chapter 1, actually what God says through Habakkuk about the Chaldeans. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. I'm going to allow them to do what they're doing. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. God says, I'm going to allow what they're doing and I'm going to weave it into my purposes. But they're not doing it for my glory. They're doing it so that they can praise their own strength. And I'm going to punish them for that. 
And that's what Solomon is talking about in verse 2. God is concerned. And here's where this comes to you. God is concerned with more than just the idea that his plans turn out the way he wants. That's a given, right? God's plans always turn out the way he wants. But that's not all he's concerned about. He's also concerned about the motives, verse 2, of the people who are involved. And that's a warning to each one of us. And it's a warning in a couple of ways. First, to say this, the teaching of God's sovereignty, that God is in ultimate control of our lives, that he permits what he permits, that he thwarts anything he wants to, the idea that God is sovereign absolutely is not an invitation to throw caution And that's so many do it. So many say, well, you know, God is going to do what God's going to do. So in the end, it's not going to matter if I try really hard to discern his will or obey his commandments or not. It's all going to work out in the end. God is sovereign. Well, there's a partial truth to that. It is true that whether you choose to rebel against God or whether you choose to praise God, God is going to be glorified in the world and his purposes will not fail. But to just do whatever feels good at the time because, well, God's going to work it all out in the end overlooks one important thing, namely the fact that God cares whether or not you go along with his plans willingly and purposefully and with a heart for his glory. God cares, verse 2, about your motives. God cares about why you do what you do and not just how it all turns out in the end. Of course all things work together for God's glory. Of course all his purposes will be fulfilled. And of course your life, for good or for ill, will somehow be a part of that. But will you be a part of it willingly? That's the question. Will God work his purposes through you while you kick in the other direction or while you willingly go along with him? Are you going to serve God like a mule or like a human being, in other words? A mule can serve you quite well, can't it, even if it doesn't want to serve you. You can force the mule into the right furrow and you can get the work done even though the mule in his mule mind is trying to kick against you from the backside, right? You can still get the job done. But then you can also have a human being who's doing the work and going straight down the furrow because they want to and because they love the one for whom they're working. And you can serve God in either of those ways, and God cares about which one you choose. On the day Jesus died for our sins, there were two men, both of whom did God's bidding. There was Caiaphas, the high priest, who led Jesus to the cross, exactly where God wanted him to be. And then there was Joseph of Arimathea who took Jesus and prepared him for the tomb, exactly where God wanted him to be. Both of those men were cogs in God's marvelous plan for our salvation through Christ. But one of them worked with God willingly, while the other one did God's work unwittingly and against his own will. And so, though Caiaphas participated in the greatest event in human history, he got no benefit out of it himself because God weighed his motives, verse 2, and found them wanting. And the same will be true for each of us. Yes, God's purposes will be fulfilled. No, his plans will not be derailed. But only if you participate willingly will you benefit from it. So will you participate with God willingly or will you unwittingly against your will be woven into God's plan? He weighs the motives. 
And then the other thing to say about God weighing the motives, the other way that it applies to us and that it warns us is to notice also that it applies, verse 2, to times when you are doing right, when you are doing God's will willingly, when your ways seem clean. Even then, God is weighing your motives. Isn't that what he says? All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Even when you're doing what's right, or you think you're doing what's right, even then God wants to know what's in your heart. Because just as it is possible to oppose God's will and yet do it unwittingly like Caiaphas, it is also possible to try with all your might to do God's will, but to do it for all the wrong reasons. And we should think in this regard of the Pharisee in Luke 18. This man that we saw just a few weeks ago. He was doing what he ought to have done, wasn't he? He was fasting. He was paying his tithes. He was going to the temple. He was praying and so on. He was doing what he should have done, but when his motives were weighed, it became obvious that he was doing all those things for himself, right? And so that begs the question, why do you serve God? I mean, you're here on a Wednesday night, right? You're where you're supposed to be. Why are you here? Why do you serve God? What does God find in your heart when he waves, weighs your motives for doing what you do? I know you're, you're doing right. Your, your ways may seem clear to you, but ask yourself from time to time, what does God see? Why do I serve him? Is it simply because I think I'm going to get something out of it? Is it, like we said a week or two ago, you know, if I, if I serve God, if I come to church, my week goes better. Is it that you serve God because you think even in the back of your mind that you might earn heaven or a better spot there at least, or a bigger crown there? Or do you serve God and study his word and pray and so on for the glory of God? Do you do what's right because it's right? Because God is worthy. That's what verse 2 is all about. The Lord searches our hearts. He weighs our motives. And if he sees that we are doing the right things for the wrong reasons... Because we are proud in our hearts, verse 5, well, then we will not go unpunished, he says. Now, someone will say here, well, what about the New Testament? What about forgiveness? You not go unpunished, but yes, there's forgiveness. That's true. But just listen to what Solomon says for a moment. Just take it at face value in verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart, not necessarily outwardly, but in heart, it's an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Take that at face value. It means what it says. If your life is characterized by outward obedience, but inward pride and self-serving, you are probably not on heaven's rolls. You must not have a new heart that belongs to those who are in Christ. Because a new heart thinks differently than this. And if you remain in that position of pride, then you will awaken someday in judgment. So this whole thing about God weighing our motives, God searching our hearts is serious. And it's a good thing that we have one more verse to cover. It's a good thing that there's one final heading for us to consider. We've thought about God's sovereignty. We've thought about God searching. He is putting his searchlight upon us. And that should bother us a bit. But then finally we get to consider his salvation. His salvation. If you're even a little bit honest with yourself, verse 2 causes you to swallow hard. 
If you're paying attention at all tonight, the fact that God weighs not just your outward actions, but the motives of your heart, that he sees the selfishness that's there and the pride that's there and the bitterness that's there and the self-pity that's there and the lust that's there, the things that no one else sees, the fact that he sees those and that assuredly these kinds of things do not go unpunished ought to make you feel like you're in a bit of a jam if you're paying any attention at all. If we are even a little bit honest with ourselves, we cannot read these verses tonight and say, oh, well, I'm definitely not the person that Solomon's talking about in verse 5. I mean, there's no worries about my motives and my secret pride. No, no, no. When I talk like this, it's obvious that my pride is very out there for everyone to see, right? Of course, this verse isn't about you if you're prideful. No, but if you're honest with yourself, you can't read verse 5 and say, well, that could never be about me. Of course it could. If we're even a little bit honest with ourselves, we read all five of these verses, and we have to say, boy, is there any good news here? I mean, God is weighing my motives. Even when I think I'm doing right, I I may not be right. And if there's any pride in my heart, he sees that, and he punishes it. Is there any good news here? Well, thank God there's good news in verse 6. Verse 6, we didn't read it yet, but read it now. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. That first half of that verse is so important. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. It is possible for our secret sins in verse 2 and for our pride in verse 5 to be atoned for. It is possible to have forgiveness by loving kindness and truth. But what does Solomon mean when he says by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for? It doesn't sound like the way we would normally say it, does it? And I'll tell you what I heard a few years ago. I can't remember where this was, but I was reading uh, an interview with a Jewish leader from, from some place. And the questioner, very wisely, this is a wise question to ask your Jewish friends, the questioner very wisely said, now, you believe in sin, right? Yes, we believe in sin. You believe that you need God to forgive you of your sin, of course. Well, how can you now, as a practicing Jew, obtain forgiveness of your sins if there is no temple and therefore no sacrifices to be offered for sins according to the old testament it's a good question to ask and i thought boy he's he's stumped now what's he going to say to this he's certainly not going to appeal to the bible he's just going to have to come up with something off the cuff but you know what he did he appealed to proverbs sixteen six, and he said in essence this well you're right there are no sacrifices anymore there's no temple but god understands that And until there is a temple again, until there are sacrifices again, what God does, and he quotes Proverbs 16.6, is he accepts loving kindness and truth in place of those sacrifices. And he says, if you'll just love God and others, if you will be an honest, decent person, God will accept that as atonement for sins since you can't actually make the sacrifices that he's commanded. And so he said, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. That solves the problem of no temple. And that sounds like a good explanation. But there are two problems with it. The first is this. This is what I want to say to this fellow. Isn't your whole sin problem in the first place because you don't love God as you should and you don't love others as you should and you're not as truthful and decent as you know you ought to be? Isn't that just the problem? The problem is that you don't have loving kindness and truth as you should. You've already proven that you can't do the very thing that you're now saying you have to do. But now you're going to fix the problem by trying harder to do what you've already proven you can't do? Talk about beating your head against the wall, right? 
The whole problem is loving kindness and truth. You can't solve the loving kindness and truth problem by just trying harder at loving kindness and truth. And the second problem is, even if you could practice loving kindness toward God and toward others and absolute truthfulness and decency from here on out, that can't atone for past sin, can it? Being nice in the future can't atone for sin in the past, can it? Didn't verse 5 just tell us that? It did, didn't it? Verse 5 just told us that sin must be punished. Verse 5 doesn't say that sin, that pride is passable as long as you turn around and become a loving and a kind person. No. It says that pride simply must be punished. There's no other, there's no other way to get rid of it, for it than for it to be punished. And verse 6 is certainly not coming around one verse later and overturning that. So whatever verse 6 means, it cannot mean that sin need not be punished so long as we can go on and be nice folks from here on out. But so then what does it mean? What does it mean when he says loving kindness and truth can atone for sin? Well, verse 6 must refer to God's loving kindness and God's truth, whereby he sent his son to lay down his life in loving kindness and to live perfectly according to God's truth on our behalf. That must be what Solomon means. It's the only thing he can mean. There's only one way for sin to be atoned for. It's God's loving kindness in sending Christ. It's Christ's uh, ability and following through on all the truth of God, his absolute obedience to God. That's what saves us. Our sins may be atoned for only by Jesus. And so, though verse 5 was so difficult to read, verse 6 is wonderful. Our sins may be atoned for and yet not go unpunished because Jesus came and took the punishment for us right? What loving kindness that he came and he took the punishment for us. That must be what Solomon is referring to. Verse 6 doesn't work any other way. It doesn't fit the rest of the Bible any other way. It doesn't even fit with verse 5 any other way. So though we know Solomon didn't know all the details about Jesus and the atonement that we now know, he knew that God would, by his own loving kindness and his own truth, make a way For sin, verse 5, not to go unpunished, and yet for sinners, verse 6, to be forgiven. And so what we have here is another example of gospel truth, strewn like breadcrumbs all throughout the Old Testament to lead us to Jesus. And it's marvelous when we find Jesus in the middle of the book of Proverbs, but it's not unexpected. Now, before we finish, someone may well say, now, wait a second, wait a second, hold on. Verse 6 Verse 6 does not say that sin will go unpun- not go unpunished. Verse 6 says that sinners themselves will not go unpunished. Excuse me, verse 5. Verse 5 doesn't just say that sin has to be punished. It says that the sinner has to be punished. And then they may ask, so how does that work? You're saying that verse 6 is now saying Jesus is punished for us. And that's wonderful. I'd love to believe that. We get to go free if that's true, but verse 5 seems to say that we ourselves have to be punished. So how can verse 5 be true that the sinner must be punished and then also verse 6 be true? Well, you'll notice that the very specific sin that is spoken about in verse 5 is the sin of pride, a proud heart. And I think what Solomon is saying there is simply that those who remain with that kind of heart 
those who will not humble themselves, those who will not admit their sins and repent of them and humbly seek God's loving kindness and God's truth and God's atonement, those are the ones who won't go unpunished. He's speaking in verse 5 about a continual pattern of life. He's not saying that every person who's ever prideful must and will definitely go to hell. But he's saying that if you continue in that pattern, that's what will happen. You will not go unpunished. But then verse 6, the point is, if you'll turn from pride, if you'll turn from doing things your way, and if you'll believe in, if you'll put your faith in God's loving kindness and Christ's obedience to the truth, your sins can be atoned for. Humility. What he's saying in verse 5, when you combo it with verse 6, is that there is atonement, but humility is the key. If there's no humility, you stay in verse 5 and you will not go unpunished. But if there's humility, then you can step over from verse 5 into verse 6 and have your sins atoned for. And it's not that humility atones for sin, is it? Is it? It's not that humility makes you forgivable. Well, he's got one thing going for him, so we'll forgive him. He's humble. No, that's not the point. The point is that humility enables you to step from verse 5 where you cannot be forgiven into verse 6 where you can because it's only from a place of humility that you can receive grace, right? It's only from a place of humility that you can turn to God and seek his loving kindness. It's only from a place of humility that you'll actually repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. And so without humility, yes, you will not go unpunished. But with humility, you step over into the realm of loving kindness and truth and atonement. And so both verse 5 and verse 6 stand. If you will not humble yourself before the Lord, if you remain proud in your heart, verse 5, you will not be unpunished. But if you will humble yourself, if you will bow before God's loving kindness and His truth, if you will bow before the cross of Christ, your sins will be atoned for. By loving kindness and truth, God's loving kindness in sending Jesus, and Jesus' absolute obedience to the truth that we have so often shirked, Sin is atoned for. But will you humble yourself before the Lord? Will you step out of verse 5 on the heels of your humility into verse 6? I pray that you will.